This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. We have to be able to operate in much hotter extremes in the Middle East, parts of South Asia, parts of Africa. That's putting people's lives at risk, indigenous and local populations, but also our forces when they deploy. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. This Smart Women, Smart Power episode is supported by Tallis. Sherry Goodman has been called the mother of climate security for her work on educating a generation of U.S. military and government officials about the relationship between climate change and national security. She's a true pathbreaker in this field. So welcome so much to the podcast, Sherry. The, the last time I saw you was in Vilnius this past summer for the NATO summit. So it's, it's great to be able to continue our conversation here. It's great to be with you, Kathleen. Thank you to you and the CSIS team. So to get started, your career, you've got so much experience in, in different parts of DC, almost a decade in the Pentagon, you've been on the Hill. Now you're leading pathbreaking research on national security, climate change, energy science. How did you find yourself on this career path? My parents are Holocaust refugees who were among the fortunate few able to escape Nazi Germany in the late 1930s. And so growing up as a first generation and the firstborn child, I always knew that it was important to give back and to do purposeful work that could make life better for many. And growing up in the Cold War, what really interested me was international affairs and international security. And I was fortunate enough to have a summer internship at NATO's parliamentary assembly when I was in college and then spent a year at the London School of Economics and worked at the IISS doing research. So we have those experiences in common, too. I did the LSE yes. and IISS. Yeah, that's too Yes. <laughs> and from that, I wrote my college senior thesis, which later became a book on the neutron bomb controversy, a case study in alliance politics. And I had the opportunity through that to meet many policymakers in Washington at the time, in the Department of Defense, State, White House, on the Hill. And I was hooked by that. I was like, this is really interesting and purposeful. This is, you know, how we change the world and make it better. And so my original pursuit was in international security, which during the Cold War, the pinnacle of which was nuclear weapons and arms control. Yeah. And so that was really my original path. 
And I pursued that for work at, you know, defense consulting firms in, in, in Washington, also through my time in graduate school at Harvard Law and then Harvard Kennedy School, and then came back to DC to serve on the Senate Armed Services Committee when Senator Nunn was chairman of that committee. And John Hamry, your CEO, was my colleague on this ask. And I served as the first female professional staff member on the committee. I joined the Pentagon as the first Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Environmental Security in 1993 at the beginning of the Clinton administration. And the focus in my portfolio at the time was first and foremost on closing bases and cleaning them up, also cleaning up contamination at active bases and complying with environmental laws from Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Endangered Species Act. So really it was about moving the Department of Defense from being seen as an environmental laggard, which it was initially when I joined to really by the end of that decade to being seen as an environmental climate and clean energy leader. Now, climate really came onto the radar in DOD as we approached the 1997 Kyoto Protocol negotiations, which was one of the early conference of the parties now referred to as COPS. And that was the first time that the Department of Defense sent military members as part of the delegation. I did that in 1997 and we negotiated sort of the way in which the Department of Defense would think about both limiting greenhouse gas emissions and then developing its own climate strategy. And at that time, you know, I have to say a lot of it was really focused on kind of the emissions impacts, what constraints that would mean for military operations, and also the energy side, how we could sort of become more efficient in early days. The more strategic questions about climate change as a national security threat And then threat multiplier really came later after I left the Department of Defense in 2006 and seven, when at CNA, Center for Naval Analysis, I organized the first group of U.S. generals and admirals to address the national security implications of climate change. At that time, there was just more focus, more attention, more evidence really about the potential impacts of climate change as a security threat. After a year of study and research meeting with leading climate scientists around the world, intelligence and military professionals, business leaders, both sides of the aisle, energy industry, oil and gas, and clean energy and a variety of other sectors of the the economy, we issued the first report called Climate Change and the Threat to National Security, we characterized climate change as a threat multiplier. And that was in April of 2007. And immediately thereafter, the Senate Armed Services Committee, which was marking up its defense bill, included an amendment directing the president to include the national security implications of climate change in the president's national security strategy and DOD's national defense strategy, and also for the intelligence community to do the first national intelligence intelligence assessment. And that began a series of actions that have continued and deepened to this day so that when you look at the most recent national security strategy, you see pages and pages and many, many references to climate change and the president expressing it as the most existential threat in our lifetime. The term threat multiplier is so helpful in this 
debate because, you know, so I worked on climate change and national security when I was on the Hill as well for a little bit. And it was easy to, for some groups to dismiss arguments about climate change because causality is so difficult to prove, right? But when you talk about it in terms of a threat multiplier, how exponentially more difficult it is for the U.S. and its military forces to operate in the world, that is a case that is much more resonant, I found. So what were the early indicators that led you to that term? Like, what was there a specific conflict? Was there a specific set of instances that sort of rang the bell for you that this is the right way to approach this conceptually? I write about this in my book, which will be out next year called Threat Multiplier. You know, we spend many hours, the generals and admirals and, and with myself and expertise of analysts from CNA is sort of debating and evaluating the security implications of climate change as a risk. You know, in the Cold War, we characterized the bolt out of the blue nuclear attack by the Soviet Union, which we consider to be the most significant threat that could annihilate the U.S. and potentially the planet, to be a low probability but high consequence event, right? And then you have climate change, which we could see already in 2007. Of course, the evidence is even more clear today, but we could see even then that this was going to be a more than low probability and also potentially very high consequence set of events. And as General Gordon Sullivan, who had served as U.S. Army Chief of Staff and really reset the Army after the Cold War, also served as the first chairman of the CNA Military Advisory Board, he said about the question of sort of uncertainty, because there was a question, well, how do we know? And there's often a difference between like scientific uncertainty and between the uncertainty that war fighters face in making decisions, right? As you know. And he said, if you wait for 100% certainty, you know something bad is going to happen on the battlefield. That along with then thinking about, okay, we have this incredibly serious set of risks in climate from increasing droughts and rising temperatures and sea level rise and permafrost thawing and extreme weather events. And how do they intersect with the other more traditional security threats terrorism, weapons of mass destruction, geostrategic competition. When you look at the climate impacts on national security challenges in the Department of Defense, what are the specific things that you are seeing that can degrade the U.S. military's ability to fight and win the nation's wars? Well, you're seeing that the ways in which we what we call man trained and equip the force, person trained and equip the force, if you will, but the responsibilities of the services, as well as how each of the regional combatant commanders need to think about their area of responsibility are all affected by changing climate threat multipliers, if you will. The fact that we have to be able to operate 
in much hotter extremes in the Middle East, parts of South Asia, parts of Africa. That's putting people's lives at risk, indigenous and local populations, but also our forces when they deploy. But it also increases the possibility of equipment malfunctions, right? These sophisticated systems aren't built to operate in these kinds of heat. Exactly. And as temperatures increase and humidity increase, it actually takes more fuel to get the same amount of lift. And we're seeing this already at airports and airfields around the world. And and also installations on the coastal areas, like so many of those affected by hurricanes, flooding. I mean, that's expensive. Very expensive. I mean, just take Norfolk, Hampton Roads, the largest complex of military installations in the world, all the services and NATO command headquarters, Astanao, and also very vulnerable to sea level rise, storm surge, plus coastal in it, subsidence and inundation and how has to be prepared to both operate major shipyards, a major carrier, submarine base, fighter base not far from the U.S. Capitol that has a defend mission for the U.S. Capitol. So there are a lot of critical missions there. And so that base and along with others around the country and the world that have already been hit by extreme weather events, Tyndall Air Force Base in the Panhandle of Florida suffered mightily five years ago under Hurricane Michael and is now in the midst of a multi-billion dollar upgrade to become a climate resilient base of the future with new hangars for the F-35 that were largely destroyed during that storm. So in many ways, the department of defense is in a position to sort of lead by example in in terms of investment in climate resilience and climate and energy technologies to enable us to continue both the mission and to protect people in the future. There's no doubt that everywhere around the world, this is disruptive to the point, you know, Beyond that, in certain places, you think of small Pacific Island nations that are increasingly subject to Chinese influence and also have their very existence threatened by sea level rise and saltwater or saline intrusion as and so they may lose their fresh water and parts of their atolls first and countries like Kiribati are already making plans to move parts of their population to other nations when when those atolls no longer support the communities that now live there. Incredible. And your your work, as I recall, has taken you up to the Arctic a fair amount. I'd love your thoughts on what you're seeing up there. Well, the Arctic has really changed from one that in my time in the Department of Defense was really a zone of growing cooperation, even with Russia after the Cold War. I led a program called Arctic Military Environmental Cooperation, where we were helping the Russians with the Norwegians very much as the primary allies to help reduce liquid waste streams from Russian decommissioned nuclear submarines that had sunk at Pierside in Murmansk and in the Kola Peninsula that the Norwegians thought were a threat to their fishing grounds. We were trying to make sure that instead of having the radioactive waste leak into the ocean in the sea, that it could be safely offloaded onto steel casks and trucked inland to Chelyabinsk for safer storage. 
that was sort of the high point of cooperation on Arctic environmental matters at the end of the Cold War in the late 1990s and then the early 2000s. And then with mounting evidence of climate change, warming temperatures, sea level rise, permafrost, thaw and collapse, the region has become much more navigable, open to commercial traffic, tourism, ambitions by President Putin to convert the northern sea route, which hugs the shallow Russian coastline into a toll road for shipping from ports in Asia like Shanghai across to Rotterdam in Europe and China itself having its own Arctic ambitions and conceiving a polar silk road, an extension yeah. of the Belt and Road Initiative, where it is working with Russia, both investing in the energy resources that Russia wants to exploit and China would like to use for its own economy, but also the deep seabed mining, the other minerals that could be available and also a potentially shorter shipping route in the future. And oh, by the way, let's not forget that in the climate era, fish stocks globally are moving to the poles because of rising temperatures, also illegal and unreported fishing around the world, of which Chinese is, is a major perpetrator, Chinese fishing fleets. And so as fish stocks move ever further towards both poles, you know, there will be ambitions of fishing fleets around the world to have access to them. Looking forward, what are you hopeful for and what keeps you up at night? Where should we start? (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Maybe we should start with what keeps me up at night so we can end on a hopeful note. I like it. Okay. I mean, continuing on, on the Arctic theme and not to minimize the, just the enormity of the conflict that we face in the Middle East today and a new, most virulent war of terror in Hamas against Israelis and other innocents, Palestinians in the region too, by a terrorist organization. So, We're not through with terrorism by any means. In other parts of the world, I will say that, particularly in parts of Africa, Al-Shabaab, and places that are experiencing both places like Mali and Niger, Lake Chad, Somalia, countries where they already suffer from food and water insecurity, that climate there acts as a threat multiplier to amplify what is already a resource underserved region. And that enables terrorist groups to take advantage of vulnerable populations and then recruit young fighters into them. So that continuing and fragile states and poor governance, of course, are part of this mix. So That conundrum, I think, continues, and I think that's one that we all need to have our eyes wide open for how do we unlock some of the solutions and work the underserved work of, let's say, the Global Fragility Act and others in sort of putting together solution sets. Because again, the solution to the climate challenge as a security is not going to be the military itself. The military can lead by example in its own way and should, but the broader societal solutions are ones that are economic development and diplomacy. The other area I will say, because I have, as we've discussed, spent a lot of time in and around Arctic matters. And I'm always worried about the lack of a proper safety and protocols in Russian nuclear matters that I worry, you know, what keeps me up at night sometimes is a Russian nuclear icebreaker and other vessels that 
may have an accident or, I mean, there could be a hybrid or deliberate attack. Let's not underestimate that. But even as a precursor to something more aggressive, Putin lashing out is sort of an accident that spills over beyond Russian waters, becomes an international incident because of, you know, potential safety, environment, nuclear safety risks. And we have just a lack of information that could lead to miscalculation or escalation. And so those kinds of risks, and, and there have been some number of scenario exercises we've played out looking at that possibility of a, you know, increased Chinese ship traffic and the collision and what would happen. Of course, the U.S. and Russia are only 30 miles apart in the Bering Strait near Alaska. So you could have a lot of factors at play there in a search and rescue or an oil spill or a potential nuclear safety accident. So those are among the things that should keep one up at night in terms of planning and preparation, try to avoid those types of risks. Now, what gives me hope? Well, like you, Kathleen, I'm a mother. So our next generation always gives me hope. My kids are the light of my life. And when they think about, you know, making the world a better place, I think there are some great ideas out there in the next generation. And so I also see that in our military today and in our among our security professionals who want really to lead by example in everything from, you know, green energy and clean technologies that will power our military through net zero emissions and microgrids and lower carbon footprints in climate tech and improving our predictive capabilities. So we have a better understanding of what we call now the gaps between sort of short term weather prediction and longer term climate at a regional scale where we can make actionable decisions. I'm really hopeful about the opportunities there and and also the increasing collaborations I see and engagement both across diverse communities, but also across a, a sort of wider sector of defense and development and diplomacy with disaster risk reduction communities and also at the sort of local level and, and taking seriously very different types of thought. We talk about co-production of knowledge with indigenous yeah. populations. And I think all of this adds there is strength in that diversity. I think if we can keep our eye on that ball, as we recognize the challenges we continue to face from too many areas, and particularly, I think, you know, since it's this is a smart woman, smart power, I guess, you know, women are good at working together and we like yeah. to work together with each other. Mm-hmm. And yep. now that's become, you know, one of the joys for me in this field is I look at the interns and research fellows I have now. I've had for many years, I have dozens of them and they are a great source of strength. They are a great source of next generation talent. And it just gives me great pride, you know, to see each of them, as I'm sure you do too, Kathleen and maybe others listening, that we are able to help lift up to lead, to see the next generation of leadership. To conclude our conversation, do you feel that being, you know, your gender as a woman has impacted your approach to your career, your decisions that you've taken? And if not, why not? I would say that I'm a lawyer and I started out when I was in the private practice of law, I was a litigator first. While I 
could master all of the skills what needed to be a litigator and, you know, be in a sort of adversarial context in a courtroom or an arbitration. I found that I actually personally liked better when I was developing cooperative mechanisms to problem solve. I would say that like the Arctic military environmental cooperation with Russians, Norways, and others to try to solve a major problem or bringing together the generals and admirals in the CNA military advisory board, many of whom first said, well, I'm a warfighter. I'm not a climate scientist. And I had worked with each of the original members on matters when we were in the Department of Defense. And I said, well, let's Go on a climate journey together and let's learn together and building something new and more meaningful and powerful. And so women have a lock on that kind of approach, but often are, it can be a natural instinct to build together. And so, you know, I think those inclusive approaches are very positive. And you see that replicated in so many fields in so many ways. And now there's just much more respect and opportunity for people to be expressive in their own ways. And that's also that's also good, too. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Sherry, so much for your time today and for this terrific conversation. And I'd like to take the opportunity to invite you back when your book is published. Congratulations on getting the manuscript done. That's a huge, huge thing. You've done the same. So congratulations to you. I know that. (laughs) It's it's a thing. <laughs> it's a thing, yeah. But thank you so much. Thank you, Kathleen. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening, and join us next time. This Smart Women Smart Power episode is supported by Tallis.